Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're very glad you all are here. I extend a special welcome to those of you visiting with us this morning. If you have questions about this church or about Unitarian Universalism, please ask the people who brought you or the kind and knowledgeable people at the visitor table or anyone else who looks as if they know what they're doing. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in every person. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Please say with me the words by which we light our chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Good morning. I'm Erin Walter, and it's a joy to be the lay leader today in one of my favorite places with a lot of my favorite people. This morning's call to worship comes from J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. Good morning, said Bilbo, and he meant it. The sun was shining, and the grass was very green. But Gandalf looked at him from under long, bushy eyebrows that stuck out further than the brim of his shady hat. What do you mean, he said. Do you wish me a good morning? Or mean that it is a good morning whether I want it or not? Or that you feel good this morning? Or that it is a good morning to be good on? All of them at once, said Bilbo. And a very fine morning for a pipe of tobacco out of doors into the bargain. Good morning, Bilbo said at last. We don't want any adventures here, thank you. You might try over the hill or across the water. By this, he meant that the conversation was at an end. What a lot of things you do use good morning for, said Gandalf. Now you mean that you want to get rid of me and that it won't be good till I move off. Sometimes people ask how we are in the same room and how we call ourselves Unitarian Universalists when there's no creed, there's no list of uh, required beliefs that holds us together. Well, there are many things that hold Unitarian Universalists together. One of them for this congregation is the mission statement that you wrote and then you wrote it on the wall and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Our reading this morning comes from the musician Amy Mann. The moth don't care when he sees the flame. He might get burned, but he's in the game. And once he's in, he can't go back. He'll beat his wings till he burns them black. No, the moth don't care when he sees the flame. The moth don't care if the flame is real. 
Cause flame and moth got a sweetheart deal. And nothing fuels a good flirtation like need and anger and desperation. No, the moth don't care if the flame is real. This is the time in our service when we breathe together. Maybe the only still time in our whole week. Let's follow our breath, understanding that tiny child noises are part of silence in this congregation. It is in this still place that we open to compassion, clarity, that we seek wisdom so that we can follow a flame that's real. Let us enter into the silence together. I decided to preach a series of sermons on fairy tales. Um, I deeply regret it now. (laughs) Because fairy tales are so strange. And they are often pretty icky. So this is just a child warning. Um, Carl Jung said fairy tales were the dreams of a collective mind, the dreams of a culture, so that the folk tales and fairy tales of a culture, you interpret them like dreams, only they're not an individual's dreams, they're the dreams of a whole culture. And how you interpret a dream is you look at it as if every part of the dream were part of you. I'm often invited to do workshops for my colleagues to teach them how to tell stories. And one of the things that we do is pick out stories everybody knows, no matter where you grew up uh, within the confines of North America. No matter where you grew up, you're going to know the three little pigs, you're going to know Cinderella, you're going to know Goldilocks and the three bears. And so I spend a, a lot of time listening to ministers retell the stories And I can't tell you how often they give in to the temptation to, to tell kinder, gentler versions of the stories because they're sweet, earnest people. Most ministers are. I'm sorry you didn't get one. But, um... (laughs) I can't tell you how often I've heard the three little pigs ending with the pigs and the wolf joining together for a nice vegetarian stew. (laughs) So the Red Shoes is a strange story with a terrible ending, and some people think because of the terrible ending that it must be a fragment Um, because surely things are meant to turn out well in the end. But these stories come from centuries ago. Um, The Grimm brothers, as you know, uh, collected their stories from um, educated Huguenot women or uh, less educated Huguenot maids that were working in the houses of the people in their part of Europe. And Hans Christian Andersen collected stories from similar folks only 
uh, he really mm, modified the stories to further the uh, Scandinavian Christian kind of uh, agenda. So here is the story. There once was a girl who had no parents. She was penniless, and she had to forage in the forest for food. She often came home at night to wherever she was sleeping, tired and cold and hungry. She had gathered scraps of cloth and had made herself some shoes from this cloth, these scraps, and had dyed them with the juice of berries so that they were red. And she loved her red handmade shoes. They made her feel beautiful and dignified and rich. And so no matter how cold and hungry she was, she still had these shoes that she could look at and feel like a cherished individual because she was wearing these beautiful shoes. One day, as she was walking home, an enormous gilded carriage pulled up beside her and stopped And an elderly lady leaned out the window and said, Girl, come home with me, and I will treat you as my own, and you will have no more worries, and I will feed you, and you will be fine. So she got into the lady's carriage, and she was taken to this lady's house and bathed, and her hair was, was washed and combed, and a beautiful blue ribbon was put into her hair, and... She was given the finest under things and a beautiful gray dress and and white stockings and black shiny shoes, and she was taught to sit down and be quiet. And the lady took her to church with her. And after church, the girl had the courage to say, "Where, where are my clothes and where are my own shoes? And the lady said, ugh. They were so filthy, I put them in the fire. And those shoes were just ridiculous, and I burned them to a crisp. The girl was sad. But she wore the black shoes until she grew and grew out of them. The lady took her to a cobbler's, and um, she saw in a case these beautiful, shiny red shoes, like an apple, polished red. Now, the lady, by this time, was getting quite elderly, and her vision was beginning to go. And she didn't really see the color of these shoes that they then bought and brought home. But when they next went to church, the girl wore her red shoes, and she could hardly pay attention to the sermon, which I'm sure was fascinating. And um, because she was looking at her shoes, and she was turning them this way and that, she didn't hear the choir, even though they were fabulous. Um, She just saw these shoes. And you know that after church, during coffee hour, that old lady got an earful about her little ward's shoes and how inappropriate these red shiny shoes were for church in Scandinavia. They were improper, and the little girl was behaving very vainly and just paying attention to her shoes. So when they got home, the old woman said, you must never wear these shoes again. I will get you proper shoes in the morning. And she put the shoes in the closet up on a shelf. Well, the next Sunday, when they got all dressed up, the girl was just going to go look at the shoes, just look at them in the closet. 
Uh, she decided to put them on again. Went to church again. The old lady got an earful again. Came home. The old lady said, I'm putting these shoes in the closet. You must never wear them again. Okay, you know what happened. The next time she went to church, she went and gazed at the shoes, and her gaze became an obsession. It was like being in love. And she climbed up and she got the shoes and went to church. And when they were coming out of the church door, there was an old, wounded soldier there who had crutches and his arm was in a sling. And he said, what beautiful red shoes, come here. Let me dust them for you. And as he picked up her foot to dust her shoe, he slapped the bottom of the shoe and said, these are dancing shoes, and you will dance. And the girl's foot started to move, and she started to dance. And she thought that was fabulous because she loved dancing. Uh, But the old lady was horrified because they were in the churchyard, and she said, stop dancing this instant. And the girl was like, I'm trying, but I can't stop dancing. And she said to her footman, Catch that girl and make her stop dancing and take those ridiculous shoes off of her feet. She's worn the red ones again, I suppose. And the footman caught her, and the girl was kicking her. She couldn't stop. And the footman's hat came crooked, and the old lady's hat got crooked, and everybody was in a a, a tizzy until finally the footman got the shoes off of her feet, and her feet calmed down, and they went home, and the old lady put them away on an even higher shelf than before. Well, the next week, the old lady took very ill. She was lying in her bed and not really moving. And the girl went to visit the shoes, just to visit, just to see, just a little look. Maybe just hold them. She's just going to hold them. And she put them on her feet, and her feet started dancing. And she danced a gavotte, and then she danced a minuet, and then she danced a waltz, and they danced her right out of the door of her house and danced across the fields and she said let's dance over there to the to the my neighbor's house so she can see how beautifully I'm dancing but the shoes took her this way and she wanted to dance down the middle of the road but the shoes took her backwards and she finally realized the shoes were dancing her she wasn't dancing the shoes and she began to worry And suddenly there appeared this spirit of doom. And it said to her, you will dance until you die. Your flesh will melt off of your bones and you will be miserable and you will dance through the town and you will have to knock on every door three times so they come out and see you and are horrified at what they could become. And she danced, sure enough, and got paler and paler and skinnier and skinnier and couldn't stop dancing. And she danced not beautiful dances, but horrible dances. And she felt she was in the middle of a nightmare. And after days and days of dancing, she danced back past her house, and she saw everybody in the neighborhood was there because the old lady had died. And she couldn't even stop to pay her respects to the old lady. She was just dancing and danced on past the house while everyone looked like that at her. She decided, I'm going to dance into the woods if I can and go find the executioner because life is not worth living. She's led her dance into the woods toward the executioner's house. 
And in his house, the axe that was on his wall began to tremble, feeling her coming. She banged on the executioner's door, and she said, please, please help me cut these shoes off of my feet. And he tried. He cut the straps of the shoes, but they were stuck tight. And he said, girl, I'm just going to have to cut your feet off. And she said, really, do it. I cannot dance like this anymore. I am going to die. And so he did. And her feet in the red shoes danced over the hill and away. And she got some crutches and was a cripple. Um, And then she went to work in other people's houses as a servant. And that's the end of the story. Okay. I don't know how you're a servant with no feet. I don't know. And Clarissa Pinkola Estes, who's a wonderful Jungian storyteller, says this must be a fragment of a story because in the Jungian thing, you know, you have your epiphany, you get rid of your, you, you remove that part of you that is uh, causing you uh, to go off track, and then you gradually grow back into wholeness. I think that's pretty hopeful and nice because I think that the, uh, the time that, that these stories grew out of was a time in Europe that was pretty rough to live in. Um, Number one, there was no anesthesia until Queen Victoria's time, really. Um, I think that makes rough enough. But there was the Black Plague, and there were uh, wars, and there were people treating one another. You know, that was uh, Christianity's time of acting like the ISIS fundamentalists are acting now. And so there was a lot of uh, torment and torture and beheading and inquisition and that kind of thing. And these stories grew out of that time in Europe. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that her feet didn't grow back in the story, although maybe they did. Maybe it's a fragment. We don't know. So what I want to say this morning is that there are many different ways of interpreting this story, as many different ways as there are meanings for good morning in the passage from Tolkien that Aaron Read. The Jungians say, well, let me tell you the, the Hans Christian Andersen one first. The, the Scandinavian Christians say, that girl was vain. And she shouldn't have been vain, and she especially shouldn't have been vain in church. And her vanity cut her off from her spirituality and made her proud. And so she had to cut out her vanity and become humble again and a servant. So don't be vain. (sighs) I just don't think the sun shines enough up there. (laughs) The Jungians would say, this girl had her shoes that she had made herself. She had her handmade life. Your shoes are where you stand. She had made a place to stand. She had made her own value system. She was doing her own life. She had taken care of herself and was making beauty that made her feel whole and wonderful. And then someone came along and offered her something that purported to be better, and the girl fell for it and gave up her handmade life in order to have an easier life. And that sets up a hunger in a person. 
that you want to fill, no matter whether the flame is real or not. You want to fill it with whatever makes you think you're going to feel whole again. And so when she saw the red shoes in the cobbler's place, they were shiny and perfect. They were like her red shoes, only more intense. They were like happiness, only more like cocaine. And so she wanted those shoes and wore them and wore them. And then when they turned out to be controlling her, she got rid of them. But then she took them back. She took them back. And she took them back until finally they had her. And she found out that they were taking her places she didn't want to go, this artificial life that she had put on her feet. They, it wasn't her handmade life, but it reminded her enough of her handmade life that she fell for it. And so they danced her and danced her all over the place until she was pale and haggard. And the Jungians would say, when we have that hunger inside because we have been told to sit down and shut up and because our beautiful handmade shoes have been taken away from us and we've been told to be proper and we've been told to... Um, nod to the spirituality of our culture and not ask any questions and be sweet all the time and be good and not cry and do whatever you're supposed to do to be the one that fulfills your own family's expectations. That sets up a hunger and you want to fill it with too much work or a relationship that you're obsessed with or drugs or alcohol or any number of things that start controlling you. Now, everybody knows who has tried to give up something that's really controlling them. It's almost impossible. And you have to not just untie the straps of it. You have to actually get rid of it. So she went to her inner, remember everybody in the story is part of you, she goes to her inner executioner who says, this stuff has got to stop. If we're going to get off these drugs, we have to have all new friends, we have to have a whole new place to be, we have to have all new habits, we have to have all new patterns, otherwise we'll just fall right back into the patterns that we had. If uh, I knew a, a microbiologist at Duke, and he was um, going places. But he was working all the time, and he didn't like the people he was working with, and he couldn't think of any place he'd rather um, work, and his wife was unhappy. And so he just quit. He quit and started delivering pizzas in Durham, and um, finally he decided that he'd like to be a machinist. And so he got trained as a machinist and was very happy. Um, he had to quit completely, had to just cut it off and not be even a little bit of a microbiologist. He wasted all that money, and his parents were not happy. But he was. He had his own handmade life back again. I think there are even more ways to interpret because I think that your interpretation of a story like that or a scripture um, 
has a lot to do with your culture and your values and your assumptions in the world. So um, if it doesn't make sense to you that someone should be punished that harshly for being a little vain about some red shoes when they're a child, um, maybe you think it could be about addictions. Maybe it's about addictions. But maybe you're uh, a little more outside of the Christian paradigm, and you think, people like me, we like red shoes. We think red shoes are cool. And so maybe the red shoes are like your gifts. If you are a gifted person, that is not always a good thing. Can I get an amen from anyone? Does anyone know a gifted musician? I happen to know several. And I know that it's not easy being gifted. Anybody see the movie Whiplash? That's a Red Shoes movie if I ever saw one. You cannot stop doing it, and you cannot ever do it so that you're satisfied. At the same time, both are true all the time for the rest of your life. And so you are a gifted artist, maybe. And you paint, but people don't even know that you paint. They don't even come to your shows. But you can't stop painting, but you can't paint well enough to be a success, whatever that is. And even the people who are a success are kind of miserable because they're not the kind of success they would like to be. And your red shoes of your gifts they dance you and dance you and dance you and dance you till you die. Would you rather cut them off? Would you rather say, I'm just not going to do music anymore? I'm not going to do art anymore? Well, plenty of people do that. Are they happy? I don't know, because I don't know any of them. I think the dance is good and bad. Like life. Or perhaps... Uh, the red shoes that you make are your own dance to dance. And if you give them away and take someone else's shoes, like in the Kate Bush song, she gave her own shoes away and put on the ballerina's shoes because she wanted to dance like that diva dance. I want to do it like you do. So she put on the diva's shoes and she couldn't stop dancing because she was dancing someone else's dance. See what I mean? You put on someone else's shoes, you're dancing somebody else's dance. And it takes a lot of spiritual work. The whole album of Kate Bush's is about this red shoes, and it comes from her um, movie about the red shoes. And after she's dancing like a crazy person, she goes to Lily, this spiritual woman. Um, the song that Lily sings is, is very, uh, what do you call it? It's hieratic. Um, priestessly. It's, uh, she calls on the angels. She calls on Uriel and Raphael and Michael, all the archangels, and it's like a spell or a prayer. And she surrounds the girl in the red shoes with a circle of fire, and so the girl can have some peace. If you're dancing somebody else's dance, it's hard work to take your own dance back. And 
So that's one thing I want to say in this sermon. And the other thing I want to say in this sermon is everybody's interpretation of the story feels to them like the right one. My Republican sister watches the news and interprets everything in a Republican way, which feels to me completely wrong. And I watch the news and interpret everything in my own left-of-center way, which feels to her completely wrong. But we agree that that dress is white and gold. (laughs) And the people who say blue and black are just, I don't even understand. Are we living on the same planet? The people who made the dress say it's blue and black. But in that picture, it was white and gold. A fundamentalist person can interpret a scripture in such a way as to tell them that in a religion of peace, they have to behead everybody who does not agree with them. A fundamentalist Christian can interpret the scripture in such a way as to say, I am loving my child who is gay by throwing them out of the house onto the street. And that is more loving than being accepting of their gayness. Because my fundamentalist Christian beliefs tell me that throwing them out is the way to wake them up. There are so many ways of looking at this story. And what I want to say is I'm proud to be in a group of people who can accept that you can hold diametrically opposed things in your head at the same time, except for the dress thing. Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts, and we are together again. Rise up, O flame, by thy light glowing. Show to us beauty, vision, and joy. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.